James chapter 4 is our text, verses 4 through 6. We're in a mini-series called Becoming Peacemakers. I hope you want to become a peacemaker. How do you do that? That's what this series is aiming for, is to learn how to become a peacemaker in our families and in our churches and our communities and our jobs. But the other day I was sitting at home and my wife gets the magazine Good Housekeeping and um, I don't normally read Good Housekeeping, but nothing else to read while I was eating by myself. And so I happened to read this article and here's a quote from this article. Now, before I give you this quote, how many of you have had somebody, I don't know, last month say something that offended you? Raise your hand. How many of you have had, in the last month, somebody say something that hurt you or offended you? Our sensitivity, quote, to negative opinions is so strong that we record emotional wounds in the same part of the brain as physical pain. Back when we were hunter-gatherers, being excluded from the group was very dangerous. Now, listen, this is the modern notion of where conflict comes from. In modern psychoneurology, the source of all human behavior, friends, is the social brain. Now, this there is no doubt that our bodies influence us greatly. But listen, is there something deeper even than our physiology when it comes to conflict? The Bible says there is. And we saw it in James chapter 4. Look at verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? James then reads, look with me, your social brain. No, that's not what he says. Don't they come from your desires, the battle within you. The Bible says that the desires of our hearts, the battle within us, spring out conflict. James is about to give us God's sharp-eyed view of the battlefield of our hearts in conflict. Now let me give you a warning. This is not easy to hear what you're going to hear today. And there is a degree of humility that you may want to put on your hearts now in order to receive what God says because it's absolutely alarming. Number one, what is the picture that God sees when we are enmeshed in conflict? Look at what James says, verse 4. You adulterous people. Remember, he's talking about what causes fights and quarrels among you. He's still on that topic. Don't you know... Verse 4, that friendship with the world is hatred toward God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, would you agree with me that this is an attention-getting verse? The triviality of our culture that our culture places on this word adultery has sort of softened the word. Because you hear about it all the time. It's on a television show. It's made for entertainment. But for those first century Jews who heard this letter read to them, it was scathing in effect. Even in the pagan Greek and Roman world, and I say pagan not as irreligious, but as polytheistic or polyreligious in the sense that they worship any and every god that was presented. In this pagan Greek and Roman world, friends, listen, adultery 
was strictly forgiven, forbidden rather, legally forbidden. In other words, if a woman, and I'm just going to use that gender at this point, but if a woman was in an adulterous relationship, her husband or his family were granted the right to get revenge. This is the environment of that day. But James literally writes, not you adulterers, you adulterers and adulteresses is what he literally writes in the Greek. So what are we learning from this? Number one, A, James tells them that they are guilty of adultery. Now listen, if I were to stand up here this morning, which I'm probably going to do at some point in this text, and tell you that if you're in the midst of conflict, that the Bible says you're an adulterer, how are you going to respond What's going to happen in the walls of your heart? Are they going to go up or are they going to go down? Look what James says, you adulterous people. It's a phrase of covenantal unfaithfulness. But listen, who were they unfaithful to? And the answer is God. Did you hear that? James is talking about, Al, you and I, we get in a conflict. I didn't like... Meeting at Forks Diner yesterday for men's breakfast. And I'd like to meet somewhere else. And you say, well, Pastor Tim, sorry, but we all want to meet here. But Al, I really think, and it goes on and on. Guess what? God, if we pursue that and it, and, and it comes into conflict, God says that you and I are adulterers. How many of you are in a conflict currently? Who's going to admit this? This is not easy to hear. In the midst of quarreling and fighting in pursuit of our own pleasure, demanding our own way, we break our covenant with God. If I have an issue with my neighbor, neighbor, for instance, about his leaves blowing into my yard, and instead of dealing with it righteously toward peace, making peace, I argue with him. I blow his leaves back in his yard. Yard. I make angry, sarcastic comments either to him or about him. Then I have chosen, friends, to violate the great commandment to love God with all my heart, all my strength, all my mind, and to love my neighbor as myself. I have broken and forsaken my promise to be faithful, to obey and serve God and others, and instead followed my passion, followed my desire, and I demanded my own way. Friends, that is adultery. An adulterer is one who has broken a promise. It's a renegade to the vows that he or she has made. You see, God has made a marriage covenant with his people. Here's what Isaiah 54 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. You see, the New Testament took this concept of God marrying his people and brought it into the new covenant with the relationship the church has with Christ and the relationship that Christ has with each of us. Did you know this? Romans 7, 4 speaks to this. So my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another. This is marital covenantal language. Christians belong to another. If you are here this morning and you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you belong, you are betrothed to another and his name is Jesus. 
But you see, this isn't like a distant relationship that a king way up in the castle has with its subjects all the way down in the fields or a master to a slave, but more like the loving relationship that a husband has with his wife. And so listen, when we sin, now write this down, plant it deep in your mind. When you and I sin, there are no exceptions. When we sin, it is a love affair with our own desires. And when those illicit desires are blocked, when I want something and somebody says, no, you can't have it. If we bear arms, we rise up and we bear arms. That's conflict. It is this unfaithful pursuit of pleasure that gains you and I the ignoble term called adulterer. But James isn't even finished. I mean, here, so far, what we've learned is that when you and I are in conflict, when you and I are pursuing what we want all the way down to the very core of our heart, lurking below what any of us wants to see, but when we are demanding what we want, God's view, God's snapshot, God's picture of our hearts is that you and I are right then adulterers. If you've ever experienced the pain of having your spouse have an affair with another person, it is almost paralyzing in scope. Now you're seeing the heart of God. James tells them that they are God's adversaries. Not only is it enough, not only is the picture grim, that we are adulterers, but he goes on and he says we are God's adversaries. Look at James 4 again, verse 4. Don't you know that friendship with the world is what? Hatred toward God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Well, Pastor Tim, this isn't talking about conflict. Yes, it is. He started in verse 1 talking about conflict. He's going to be moving through conflict of how to become a peacemaker. But James is still very much in the context of how do we understand the heart that's in conflict. You know, we battle over our desires. We refuse to work toward peace. Then we are being what the Scriptures calls worldly. One of the saddest epithets of anybody in Scripture is found in 2 Timothy 4.10. It says this, Demas because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. See, earlier Paul called Demas a fellow worker for the cause of the gospel, but Demas was worldly. Demas had worldliness raging in his heart, and it caused him to desert the gospel and, listen, fracture a healthy relationship that he once had with the apostle Paul. James says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. What's that word friend mean? It comes from the Greek noun philia. And it means a response of the heart to that which seems to be pleasurable, pleasurable and delightful. So if you're a friend of something, then that object that you're friend with seems pleasurable and delightful. But James uses it here to describe the intense and the deep affection that Christians can sometimes have for the world system. What's that word world mean? The world is, in the Greek, the system of humanity that is alienated from God 
and acts in opposition and hostility to him. So this is what the world is. The world's a system that opposes God. It does whatever it can to act in hostility towards him. Friends of the world, Christians who run after their own desires, want their own way, become friends of the world because they want what their their pleasurable hearts are craving. And at that point, not only are we adulterers, we are enemies acting in opposition, adversaries to God. Christians who choose to pursue the pleasures that this world offers, spurning the God who truly satisfies, that is adultery, are unavoidably drawn to friendship with the forces that powerfully move in hostility to God. And James tells us again the horrific result in this person's life. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God, or Kent Hughes puts it, the redeemed enemies of God. Friends, what are we saying so far? This isn't very easy to hear. It's not fun to preach either. I'm a fighter. I'm a warrior type of a person where, you know what, I get in conflict all the time. I have a quick temper. And I like things the way that I like things. And when something opposes that, there is an automatic reaction that God needs to redeem me out of. I want my way, so I climb up those steps and I sit on the throne and everybody else is supposed to serve me. You ever come home from work? And you want that house neat? And you want it quiet? You don't want to hear your your children fighting? And when any of these things happen, what is your response? You get angry, that's a manipulation tool. You start yelling, all you're dealing with is behavior. You're not dealing with the heart, nothing's going to change. But friends, that's what I struggle with. I'm I'm a person that knows about conflict. All conflict has a vertical root. In other words, if you don't get to, and if I don't get to the point where we see how I'm an adulterer to God, how I'm an enemy of God, how I am opposing God, and how I'm a friend of the world, and how I am running after my own desires, if I cannot get to that root, I cannot transform and become a peacemaker. Either can you. This is what James is doing. We've seen the picture that God has in our conflict. What about the heart of God in conflict? We're going to learn how to become peacemaker, but James needs to show us a little bit more in our hearts. Verse 5, or do you think Scripture says without reason, do you think Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Well, friends, how does God respond? When we forsake him, to satisfy ourselves, and instead we battle and we quarrel to get what we want. How does God respond? He responds the way any spouse would if their loved one commits adultery. He grieves. He grieves. He's jealous. That's why James says he he envies intensely. See, conflict is about the worship of ourselves. Did you know that? When you're in conflict and peace is broken and you're committed to getting what you want, it is self-worship. You're not worshiping God. You're not serving other people. It's all about you and it's all about what you want people to give you, even God. 
And it incites God to envy intensely. See, jealousy is an attribute of God. Did you know that? Exodus 34, 14, do not worship any other God for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Jealousy is, is, is part of who God is. It's part of the pure element of his love. If we give our love to another, he jealously moves. But friends, this is a difficult verse to interpret. If you have your NIV, if you have the NIV, you'll see in probably other translations that uh, the human or that the word spirit is either lowercase s or uppercase case s, either the human spirit or the Holy Spirit. Uh, the NIV puts a footnote that it's the Holy Spirit, but in its text, it translates it as the human spirit. If it is the human spirit. Now, listen, I want you to think for a second. I actually want you to think for 35 minutes. Then James is referring to the tendency in all of us toward envy and jealousy of one another. You see, don't we struggle with that? Come on, let's be honest. Don't we struggle with envy? Don't you struggle with the looks that somebody else has, the car, the house, the personality, the respect, the attention? We're jealous people. We're envious people. But the other translation could mean that God yearns over the plight of our spirits, which are battling for illicit pleasure. So in this view, then when God sees us in conflict and God sees Keith wanting his way and Sharon, which they never do this, wanting her way and they erupt in conflict, then it's the, he sees their illicit hearts battling and he envies intensely. That's not really the best translation. Let me give you the one that makes the most sense. The one that makes the most sense to me is that James is talking about the spirit of God. The Holy Spirit who dwells within us is jealous that we don't fall into friendship with the world. Now, this truth, friends, listen, this truth, if you can grasp it, it has the potential of transforming your life. Let me explain that. God loves you. God loves you, Amanda. You are precious to him. Diane, you are precious to him. Roger, I'm working on that one. But God, <laughs> you'd have no idea how much abuse I get from that man, okay? I, I love you, brother. God loves you, Roger. People, God loves you. You are precious to him. He's the lover of your soul. And when the scripture says envies intensely, it means that he burns in heated passion for you. That's what the Greek means. When we are engaged in conflict and we are demanding our way, we have climbed up the steps to the throne and we're sitting on the throne and we want to rule everybody, including God. And when we're pursuing our desires rather than submitting to him, rather than trusting that God alone can satisfy our desires, God burns with jealousy and he hotly pursues you and I. He loves you and me with passion. He loves us with loyalty and a faithfulness we cannot even imagine. God is single-mindedly Remember, I told you, James wrote this book to make a single minded people because double minded people love God now, Sunday morning, and then love ourselves Monday through Saturday. 
James wants us to be single-minded. The faith that we have meets the life that we live. But God is single-mindedly devoted and he will not tolerate a rival. He will not stand by when you pursue your lovers. And he wants you and I to be single-minded in our love for him. He wants a relationship that is marked with trust, that is marked with intimacy, that is marked with passion. Who wouldn't want to have that? Who doesn't burn with jealousy when your spouse has an affair? The Spirit of God lives in you and I through faith. But when we pursue the pleasures of this world and are embroiled in conflict, God burns with jealousy as one whose lover has gone astray. So, friends, what does our jealous God do with adulterous adversarial Christians like you and I? He pursues them. Look what James says in verse 6. But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What's the response of God in conflict? He gives more grace. St. Augustine once said that God gives what he demands. Friends, never forget this statement. The greater the demands of God, the greater the grace God gives you to fulfill them. The greater the demands of God, the greater the grace that God gives you to fulfill them. You know what? An artist once submitted a picture of Niagara Falls for an exhibition, but he hadn't given it a name. And the gallery needed a name for it, and so they finally came up with one, and here's what it is. More to follow. You see, Niagara Falls spills billions and billions of gallons of water per year. Year after year has provided for the needs of those below since people settled the area. It's a fitting picture of God's grace more to follow for the warring, straying hearts of his children. Look at what James says, but he gives us more grace. That is what scripture says. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Friends, listen. This is the turning point for you and I in conflict. And it is the hinge of James's teaching on how to become a peacemaker. You see, all James has done so far is he's brought you and I into the medical lab of our heart and he snapped an x-ray and he slid us into the MRI tube and he took a picture of our hearts. You want to know what it looks like, Carl, when you're in conflict? Horizontally, it's your desires that you're running after. You want to know, Gary, what it looks like when you're in conflict vertically? It's you being an adulterer and an adversary of God. You're his enemy and you're opposing him. This is what James is doing because you and I won't change. You and I can't change until we see what is at the root of our hearts. And that is we are straying from God, pursuing our own love. And we're now his enemy. But James turns it and he begins to move us towards hope. And he uses the word but, my favorite word in this passage, B-U-T. It's an interruption word. You see, James has completed the dissection of our hearts. And now he turns to the solution. And friends, the solution is the grace of God. Friends, listen, grace interrupts warring hearts. Grace interrupts warring hearts. There's been times where I have been so irritable at home. 
No, nobody can do anything right when I'm like that. And I can't tell you how many times that my wife has come back to me and said, instead of yelling at me, instead of correcting me, said to me, honey, is there anything I could do for you? You want me to make some coffee? Do you need anything? Friends, when she does that almost every time, it is grace through her that enters the picture and begins to interrupt my self-worship and moving my eyes back to God in love and back to her in service. Does that make sense? That's what we need. We need grace that interrupts warring hearts. Grace turns pleasure-seeking people away from themselves toward the giver of all good gifts. His grace is the divine initiator. Friends, listen, without God's grace, you and I utterly cannot raise the white flag. Until God's grace shines in our hearts, we are right where Proverbs says, all a man's ways seem right to him. Come on, haven't you had that mindset in conflict? I'm right in this. It's so clear to me. Why can't that person see this? Because all a man's ways seem right to him until God shines grace and interrupts the warring soul. God opposes the proud, friends. You know what that word proud means? It's a pretty neat definition. It's frightening. It's a Greek word. It means one who shows himself above Others pride always is about elevating ourselves over everybody else. Proud people have a high regard for themselves and a low regard for others. Both views, both high regard and low regard are often massively distorted. But who, according to this passage in James, are we elevating ourselves above? People verses one through three and God. Verses 4 and 5. See, God opposes proud, self-inflated, self-elevating heart. But the word opposes is a military word. If you've got a military background, then what you'll like this word. It's a military term that means to arrange your forces in battle against an enemy. God arrays himself. God arranges himself against you and I in the middle of conflict in order to interrupt us, oppose us, in order to turn us back to him and away from ourselves. You see, friends, listen, haven't you had that guilty conscience? Haven't you gone to bed angry with your loved one and the first thing you think of in the morning after a night of fitful sleep? So I can't believe he did that to me. Or I can't believe she did that to me. It's that unrest. It's that lack of peace. It's that lack of ability to function the way that you want to. Those are God's weapons. God's the one that's opposing you. He's the one that's opposing myself. Somebody might say this morning, and I, I'm sure people are, some of you are thinking this. But Tim, you don't know what a horrible conflict I'm in. It's too big. It's gone on too long. We don't even talk anymore unless we have to. You know, the scriptures speaks to you, Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Do you notice what James wrote? He says, but he gives more grace. You know what that literally means in the Greek? It literally means greater grace. The NASB translates John 116 for in his, for of his fullness 
we have received grace upon grace like Niagara Falls, which pours gallon after gallon over its lips and to provide for those below. God pours out grace upon grace upon grace upon grace to those whose hearts are in conflict. This is the love of God. This is what he loves. He pursues you and I with jealous love to reclaim us. Let me ask you this as we come down towards the end of the sermon. Are you angry with someone? Do you have a relationship that has been broken? Are you full of resentment and bitterness? Have you given up hope that it will ever be restored? Grace awaits. Grace upon grace like the waves of the ocean. But is there a requirement to get it? According to James, there is. Look what he says. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to who? To the humble. See, pride kills grace. Did you hear that? Pride elevating yourself above another kills grace. But humility opens its floodgates to receive it. James has us at a turning point in conflict. And he's about to give us the necessary steps. Starting next week, Lord willing, you and I are going to look through 10 steps to becoming a peacemaker that he puts one after another in this text. And all of these are beautiful in scope. All of these make us a peacemaker. But so far, we've realized that, friends, the problem in conflict is not your parents. It's not their fault. It's not your genes. It's not your environment. And it's not even your social brain. The problem in conflict at the very deepest level is redemptive in nature. It's a heart warring against God. The deeper redemptive look reveals a fierce commitment to ourselves, not trusting God to fulfill our desires, not willing to submit to his desires, and instead choosing to go into battle against others and against God, who we have left for the love of another and become a friend of the world and his enemy. Friends, that's the redemptive look in the heart and conflict. But grace is ready to flood us as soon as we hold up that white flag. As soon as we call for a ceasefire, God's grace begins to pour in. So listen, are you a fighter? Are you prone to getting into conflicts? And maybe even right now you're in a conflict that has raged for months or even years. There is grace available if we will humble ourselves. And God's grace is always greater than our needs and forever more than we will ask. So what do you do? You humble yourself and ask. Here's what we're going to close. Listen to this. Hebrews 4. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. It's like a scalpel. Cuts deep. Lord, I think you're asking us to hold still and let you do your job. It is hard.
We want to squirm. I remember, Lord, those times of pulling slivers out of my children's feet. Just getting them to hold still was the hardest part. Lord, I pray that our hearts can hold still this morning and let you do your work. Lord, teach us to be peacemakers. Lord, teach us to be humble. Lord, pour out your grace in our hearts. We need your help. And we ask for this. Approach your throne of grace with confidence. Lord, knowing that you never demand what you will not supply the ability to do. Lord, you give greater grace to greater demands. Lord, for my friends here this morning, some may be arguing with this text, arguing with my sermon. Lord, I pray that they would hold still and let you do your work. And walk them towards humility, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.